Today on Against the Grain, many have concluded that the climate emergency will only be addressed by mass collective action. But given the small size of the U.S. left, who would populate such a movement? Scholar and participant activist Kai Bosworth draws lessons from the struggles against the Keystone XL and Dakota Access oil pipelines in the upper Midwest, which brought together a broad coalition of opponents ranging from anti-capitalists to landowners. He discusses the populist side of that movement, its openings and limitations, including xenophobia and nationalism. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. In the last decade, the Great Plains region of the Midwest was the site of significant and far-reaching anti-oil pipeline struggles. Native nations, progressives, farmers, ranchers, and environmentalists came together in opposition to the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines. The Midwest, of course, has a deep history of populism, dating back to the 19th century, of a politics of the people against the elites. And a left or environmental populism took shape in opposition to the pipelines. Kai Bosworth was involved in the movements as a young activist, and as a scholar, he's taken stock in his book, Pipeline Populism, Grassroots Environmentalism in the 21st Century. He teaches international studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. To start with Kai, can you remind us where the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines were or are rooted? So the Keystone XL pipeline was a series, a system of pipelines designed to bring tar sands oil from Alberta, Canada, to refineries in the U.S. Gulf Coast and in Patoka, Illinois. Parts of this system were initially proposed starting in 2007-2008 through Montana, the Dakotas, and Nebraska, as well as down through Oklahoma and Texas. Um, the Oklahoma and Texas portions of the pipeline were eventually approved and completed, uh, but the upper route of the pipeline from Alberta to uh, Nebraska was never completed. It was due primarily, I would argue, to the opposition that emerged on the ground from Native nations and from uh, their non-Native allies uh, in the region. The Dakota Access Pipeline started a little bit later and is different for a number of different reasons. So the Dakota Access Pipeline was designed to bring fracked oil from the North Dakota Bakken region to those refineries in Illinois, and it would have traveled through and does travel through South Dakota, Iowa, and Illinois uh, on the way. So you can already tell it's not an international pipeline. It's transporting a different kind of oil, which is basically a, a light, sweet oil rather than a heavy, dark, gloopy uh, crude oil from the Alberta tar sands. And because of that, uh, it didn't have the same kind of regulatory approvals needed. It was sort of fast-tracked through the environmental assessment process, um, put in the ground relatively quickly prior to the opposition that emerged at uh, and by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe um, at the blockade um, in North Dakota that eventually slowed it down. Uh, that pipeline was ultimately completed um, in 2016. And importantly, there are two different corporations behind these projects as well. So Keystone XL was proposed by TransCanada, a Canadian uh, corporation, whereas the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL as we sometimes call it, um, was proposed by Energy Transfer Partners, or ETP, which is a uh, firm out of Texas. Obviously, characterizing a region can be a bit difficult, but broadly speaking, what would you say is the political character of the upper Midwest, bearing in mind variation? A lot of people might think of the Dakotas, um, Nebraska, Iowa as kind of flyover country. Um, they are, uh, for the most part, ruled uh, politically by a hegemonic or dominant 
um, conservative coalition um, and have been for a number of years. Uh, but within these states, there's still a variety of different kinds of uh, political uh, forces, ideas, peoples, um, organizations that are uh, and have emerged uh, over the last couple hundred years. So I already mentioned um, in South Dakota, where a lot of my research takes place, uh, the role of um, Native nations and their um, South Dakota has nine uh, indigenous reservations. Um, but the entire western half of the state is also contested by these Native nations as having been um, unlawfully or illegally stolen um, by the U.S. federal government in uh, the 1870s and 1880s. So um, the sovereignty of this region is, is deeply fractured um, right off the get-go. And then on top of that, you know, there's kind of emerging um, and, and bubbling sorts of versions of uh, left or radical politics um, among indigenous and non-indigenous people in these regions, as well as what my research focuses on is a kind of a cyclical reemergence of a, a sort of grassroots populism. Um, these are places where the populist party or the people's party uh, found roots in the 1880s and 1890s um, among farmers who felt that they were being unlawfully or unfairly treated by, um, by grain elevators and banks and the like. Um, and ever since that time, um, this sort of populist movement has uh, reemerged every once in a while as a kind of way of building uh, coalitions for economic and even environmental justice in the region um, and against uh, forms of exploitation that are seen to be tied to outsiders moving into the region um, and taking advantage of locals. And we'll talk a lot more in the course of the hour about the ideas and politics that are associated with this kind of uh, the form of populism that you see emerging in opposition to the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines and their contradictions and complexities. But I wonder if you would start by, you know, having set the scene of the place in which these movements arose in the upper Midwest, a place that, of course, is, is much more varied than often uh, outsiders might think, but at the same time tend to be conservative areas. How did the movements in opposition to, well, let's start with the Keystone XL pipeline, how did that coalesce? These pipelines aren't, weren't even really sort of formally announced um, in the public sphere. And so oftentimes the first time that people would hear about the possibility of a pipeline, you know, running through this region um, was when the land agents, uh, contractors hired by the firm, would knock on their door and say to landowners, usually farmers or ranchers, that, uh, you know, we're planning to build a pipeline through this region. Uh, we have an easement contract here for you to sign. Um, and uh, sometimes they might say, you know, if you sign it today, you get a little bonus. Uh, and they might say, if you don't sign it today, um, if you don't sign it at all, we might have to use eminent domain, which is the state's power to seize private property and transfer it uh, usually to the state. But since um, a Supreme Court ruling in the early 2000s, uh, the federal government can also use eminent domain to transfer private property from one private owner to another. So a lot of landowners, when they first heard about the pipeline, uh, you know, many of them signed those contracts and a lot of them didn't. And then they began talking to their neighbors and then uh, it sort of came out into the public sphere. And then, you know, once the, the tribes learned about it, uh, they became, you know, very adamantly opposed to the pipelines. Keystone XL, for instance, doesn't cross any reservation land. It, it sort of deftly skirts the borders of South Dakota's, uh, the administrative borders of South Dakota's um, Native American reservations. 
but the firm in you know designing that route um, seemingly didn't understand the history of the region and that crossing any land in the Dakotas was going to be perceived as a um, infringement on tribal sovereignty. So um, these disgruntled landowners and uh, and tribes and eventually other folks like me, a, a young person who was uh, at college at the time and interested in climate justice politics, grew up in South Dakota, um, you know, they started to meet each other. Um, they would meet each other uh, at events that were organized by groups that began to perceive that we needed some sort of collective basis for organization. So groups like Bold Nebraska or Dakota Rural Action, uh, people met each other at the public meetings that were held uh, by the uh, federal government um, for the environmental impact statement process or by state level public utilities commissions. So these are kind of public input sessions, a sort of facsimile of democracy that I talk about quite a bit in the book. And, uh, you know, in somewhat sparsely populated and depoliticized, you know, landscapes like, uh, like South Dakota, just getting out and talking to people is a, a pretty big first step for organizing and, and for turning those um, sort of emergent emotions, those grievances, the, the kind of um, feeling of, of indignation at being told that your land will be crossed by a pipeline and there's very little that you can say or do about it into uh, political movements. And so um, from uh, 2008, the first part of the Keystone pipeline system was completed through eastern South Dakota. And there were a lot of grievances from that, uh, that pipeline's construction. And so when Keystone XL was uh, proposed a couple of years later, um, I mean, I think it was only like 12 or 18 months later, uh, people were prepared. Um, a, a more oppositional movement, uh, you know, oftentimes led by the, the radical and decolonial politics of of the Achete Shikono Yate and, and other indigenous uh, tribes in the region, um, but also including a, a very sort of motley crew of, of um, you know, farmers and ranchers, hippies, you know, uh, punks, uh, college students, climate activists and environmental activists um, and the like. A, a very, very sort of strange but interesting coalition uh, against the pipelines. Um, and from there, from this sort of on the ground work, and I really want to emphasize that sort of on the ground work. Um, and, and from that, the sort of broader um, attention was gathered among uh, environmental organizations at the, at the federal level. And I want to talk much more with you about precisely that Motley crew and, you know, who comprised it. And I should say that I'm speaking with Kai Bosworth about his book, Pipeline Populism, Grassroots Environmentalism in the 21st Century. You can find a link to that book at againstthegrain.org. So I wonder if I can ask you at this point, if you can define the term populist or populism for us. It's a pretty unwieldy one with a whole lot of history and, and a history of many debates over its nature. But how would you define populism and left populism here? Populism is certainly a contested term. And part of the reason I think that it's useful for me still in this context, despite being a, a contested term, which has um, a whole host of pejorative meanings attached to it, uh, is that it reveals a certain kind of political genre is what I say, a certain kind of way of doing politics uh, that tries to strike a path that seems to fit uneasily within either of the principal parties in the American political system. So the populist party or the people's party that emerged in the 1890s uh, came out of grassroots organizing in the Farmers Alliance, um, and which I sort of spoke about a little bit already, along with uh, you know labor organizing, the Knights of Labor and the like. 
um, and sought to chart out, you know, really a, a third party movement that would not be uh, captured by either uh, the Republicans or the de Democrats, both of which were seen to be uh, corrupted and distant from the desires and interests of regular working class people in the United States. So the way that that particular form of politics emerged in the 1890s has then shaped how populism as a concept has come to be used by political scientists, journalists, um, and uh, academics, and in everyday life in, in some kind of way or another. If you think that that movement in the 1890s was, um, was a disaster, uh, you know, then you're going to treat any sort of grassroots movement that emerges as if it were um, similarly uh, beset by um, ambitions and ideologies that might lead it astray. You know, so today, populism, and especially in the last 10 years, populism has been used as kind of a cudgel to try to um, push dissident elements in both uh, the Democratic and Republican parties um, back into submission to the, the sort of party lines. Um, so that's kind of like why, you know, you might hear both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, for instance, described as populists, even though their political policies seem diametrically opposed. So for me, populism is very easily sort of defined as a, a sort of political genre that takes the people as the principal authors and actors of politics and democracy, uh, but yet the people are in some ways embattled by uh, a group of outsiders, corrupt politicians, corporations, um, or even foreigners who have stolen democracy from them. And so the populist diagnosis then says, well, if we want to you know, reclaim democracy, we have to expel these others, other elites out of the political sphere in one way or another. So obviously for the political right um, and forms of right populism, uh, this sort of generic rhetorical framework uh, blames um, the, the democratic deficits that people feel on you know, for instance, immigrants, right? And, and sees them as the cause of this, um, this, this sort of inequality that is experienced in society. Um, on the other hand, for, for a kind of rhetorical or left populism, um, you know, elites are seen as economic elites, as those millionaires and billionaires who have captured so much money that um, the basic processes of democracy can't, in this country can't function. Um, and so I try to think about, you know, in what ways is this, this sort of form of, of left populism can also be seen in a kind of emergent populist environmentalism, which sees, you know, for instance, oil firms and oil executives as the elites who have in, in some way or another um, prevented regular people from exercising any sort of political power or organization over their own lives um, in the public sphere and instead uh, really retained a, a kind of minority power that allows, you know, things like pipelines to, to be um, seemingly uh, fast-tracked and shuttled across our landscapes with uh, very little uh, meaningful input or the like. And so I should say now that I think that there's a lot of truth in this sort of diagnosis that I've just laid out, but I'm also a critic of the left populist sort of diagnosis and strategy. I'll just say for now that it is a rather simplistic and abstract diagnosis that that can lead to a kind of limitation on the kind of radical or transformative possibilities that I think might be necessary if those possibilities are seen to be unpopular. Would it be fair to say that populism 
tends to be anti-elitist, and we're talking about left populism here, but not necessarily anti-capitalist. And would you say also that it tends to straddle class politics rather than embodying class politics? There are always kind of class possibilities, even in in left populism, um, that are beginning to be articulated, but they can't be fully articulated within this rhetorical framework. And that's because, you know, elites are just symptomatic of a system that, you know, constantly produces uh, inequality, concentrated inequality and uneven development. So, you know, as much as I hate, you know, Elon Musk or whatever, it's very, you know, funny to poke holes in who he is as a person and whatnot. Um, he's just a symptom of the systemic capitalist, you know, social form. And if pop, if populism can't diagnose that systemic um, nature, then it can only remain a kind of, as you said, um, anti-elitist, but not necessarily anti-capitalist social formation. Well, let's talk about what that looked like on the ground. So you had been describing how the movements came into being, the very varied coalition, in effect, of people who came together to oppose oil pipelines in the upper Midwest. Can you talk about one group who were involved in this, who were private landowners, and what you observed about their participation in pipeline opposition? Landowners were an important constituency in the coalition of pipeline opponents, and they were among those who were most likely, I would say, to adhere to the the sort of populist formation that emerged against the pipelines. So again, there are a whole host of different political positions in addition to kinds of the kinds of identities that I described in that Motley crew, um, you know, from uh, indigenous decolonial movements and radical, you know, socialists and anarchists and the like, all the way to kind of like big green groups and nonprofits and all that kind of stuff. And so among uh, all those different kinds of political positions, landowners emerged as a, a, a new and different constituency than one might expect in a, in an envi- in a struggle one might think of as classically environmentalist. Um, and you know, they were really and are and have been really, really important in kind of translating pipeline opposition in a way to the and through the experiences of other people in the region. Um, nonetheless, you know, one of the things that I observed in my interviews with landowners and in talking with um, and following folks in the movement over uh, the last 10 years or so was that many landowners in, in seeing the coalition as a coalition of the people, um, you know, thought of their relationship to their private property as being in some way analogous to that of indigenous nations relationship to their land. And so, you know, land kind of and land defense became this flexible term within uh, one aspect of pipeline opposition um, that allowed landowners to meet with and be in coalition with Native nations without sort of addressing the pretty self-evident contradiction um, that existed in who uh, ought to have sovereignty over this land and landscape. So it was really, you know, some landowners um, in beginning to engage in pipeline opposition and in conversation with uh, indigenous pipeline opponents um, eventually really transformed themselves. You know, these are people who might never have been involved in anything that we would think of as political movement organizing or, or whatnot, um, you know, and were thrown by the sudden appearance of land agents at their door into protest movements, into political struggle, and, you know, and, and there's they're what scholars would call their subjectivities, their their sense of themselves and the world around them uh, was drastically tra- transformed in a very, very short period of time. You know, so there were there were farmers and ranchers who were landowners who were on the on the barricades at 
uh, at Standing Rock, um, you know, a few short years later, there are landowners who have ceded their private property to be put back into trust. And there's, of course, all different kinds of problems with that. But transferring their land back to Native nations is, is you know, not nothing. Um, on the other hand, there are ways that this kind of coalition is evidence of the fact that populist politics works through what I kind of describe as a lowest common denominator. If you're going to try to build a coalition of the people to reclaim democracy, then you sort of have to try to figure out ways of papering over the diverse um, subject positions, identities, desires, class positions, and, and the like. Um, because this isn't a, you know, the people is not a class subject. It's, it's, a, it's a different sort of um, form of identity. And so what happened was that some of these contradictions were just displaced, that um, when landowners were fighting for private property rights and fighting against dispossession, against eminent domain, they were fighting for you know, a return to the status quo, a return to the period of time prior to the pipeline crossing their land when they felt that they were the, the authors of, and, and you know, sort of lords or kings of their own castle in the classic sort of analogy. Whereas native nations were fighting, uh, you know, in fighting for, for sovereignty and decolonization, fighting against the system of private property, which had carved up um, their territory and parceled it out to settlers, to non-indigenous uh, folks um, as part of the process of settler colonialism. So, you know, landowners were and remain in this contradictory position. And the way that that contradiction is either addressed or papered over, you know, really was um, and remains crucial for how the coalitions are built and under whose terms and with which politics. Indeed. Kai Bosworth is my guest. We're discussing his book, Pipeline Populism, Grassroots Environmentalism in the 21st Century at Against the Grain. You can find a link to that book. He teaches international studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. We're talking about the movements against pipeline construction and the complex politics of coalition in those environmental movements. One of the places that people came together, and you mentioned this earlier, a way that people encountered each other who then were to constitute the movement and effort to halt the Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipelines, was the public meetings where environmental permitting and review take place, that these became sites of encounter and a place where a certain kind of populist politics was shaped. Can you tell us about those and how they influenced people's political attitudes? I was really, really um, interested in describing the importance of these public meetings uh, in gathering groups of people um, and shaping the kinds of politics that emerged uh, in this situation. But let me take a step back for a second and just describe what I mean by, by the sort of public meeting. Um, so in, in any sort of environmental or development review process, due to the kinds of activism that emerged in the 1960s and 70s principally, um, some form of public consultation or review must take place. You'll see this in you know the development of a um, a new sports arena or a road or, you know, a, a housing complex in a city um, or all different sorts of environmental, um, developmental, you know, constructions as, as well, um, coal-fired power plants and the like. Um, and these public meetings exist purportedly um, as expressions of democracy uh, in which uh, the public is consulted and offered the chance to give input um, as a way of both improving and addressing any kind of concerns that might not be there in the actual environmental impact statement, this several thousand page long um, document that um, is full of consultant expertise and scientific 
um, graphs, figures, and terms that say that a project is a-okay to go forward, doesn't break any laws, and won't in the future. And uh, as well as, and this is no joke, that uh, these public sessions also meet, uh, uh, you know, one of their, their purposes in policy is to educate the public about the benefits and um, uh, purported impacts of, of any given project. So, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of public sessions that, that I went to and that existed um, uh, as these pipelines were constructed. Um, really, and I, I document the book, dozens upon dozens of them. Sometimes some of these landowners and pipeline opponents found themselves going to so many that it became the sort of routine. Um, and they use all kinds of colorful language, a dog and pony show, you know, um, clown cars sort of situation um, in which uh, they're invited by the firms and by the federal government to give uh, usually around three to five minute speeches offering their public input. Um, and those speeches are uh, given one after another, sometimes for hours on end. Um, and they are transcribed and then responded to in the official environmental impact statement, um, the, the final version. Uh, so it's literally just input. You're um, you're providing input, but there's no response. There's no response from the officials, really. And so, you know, people who haven't, like I said, haven't oftentimes been involved in, in politics and political struggle, um, certainly not public speaking, oftentimes are getting up there with a lot of courage and spilling out their hearts and souls describing the perceived impacts that the pipeline might have on their property, the land, um, the water, aquifers, on um, future generations, um, sometimes even on the climate, um, on the economy of the region, on the rural roads, on their social lives, on the small town character of Western South Dakota, go on and on and on. And, you know, the reasons for their opposition, you know, didn't, weren't coherent and oftentimes didn't make sense. Um, they were a jumble of, of felt ideas, but in listening to each other, uh, you know, over the course of several hours, um, it became these, these public meetings became sites where folks began to become political in a collective way. So the emotion, the heightened emotions of the situation allowed them to see that they weren't just kind of atomized individuals, private property holders or whatever, but they could they began to see that there was a collective interest in pipeline opposition as well. They could see the legitimacy of, for instance, indigenous opposition to the pipelines or the legitimacy of, um, of you know, concerns around the environment or toxicity or oil spills or, or whatever else. Um, and that's really interesting to me because these are public spaces that are, like I said, um, you know, for sort of facsimiles or parodies of what we think democracy is. And yet a certain kind of real democracy is happening in spite of all of the structure that, that is set up to kill it. Um, and that, that other sort of democracy, that, that sort of collective action occurs outside the, the real structures. And you argue that despite a lot of people coming to the conclusion that these public meetings were really kind of a sham, that people kept coming back. And I wanted to ask you about that and also about, you know, one of the, the notions that is frequently seen as being part of populism in its opposition of people to those above them, elites of various kinds, is a rejection of experts and the idea that some people have a monopoly on expertise. How did that current run through people's encounters with expert opinion at these meetings and, and beyond? Part of the reason why people frequently would still come back to these meetings, you know, despite their um, quite obvious uh, shortcomings in terms of democracy and whatnot is that they felt that they had to, that if they didn't show up, that the oil firms, uh, the consultants, um, the state and federal government agents uh, would just okay everything without any sort of opposition, you know. 
And part of that was about um, retaining a certain kind of power over the information in that environmental impact statement that authorizes you know, the pipeline to be constructed. So um, if that information were allowed to go through uncontested, you know, the fear from many pipeline opponents was that, um, that it, you know, it would be constructed very, very quickly um, and that, uh, that there wouldn't be any opportunity to actually delay or re get the pipeline to actually be rejected and, and whatnot. And that's actually a, a really, really important political observation because, you know, when we think about why was the Keystone XL, the, the upper part of the Keystone XL pipeline actually canceled. It was in part because it was delayed so many times that it became untenable for anyone to be politically um, attached to it in, in some kind of ways, including those in the Obama administration that, that felt that way. Um, so, you know, going back to this question about expertise then, so populists are oftentimes seen and described as sort of irrationally afraid of or um, demonizing scientific, academic, um, you know, journalistic forms of expertise. And what is less frequently asked of both, both right and, and left populists is why um, and where that sort of distrust comes from. And in the case of the forms of environmental and scientific knowledge that's marshaled against or marshaled for the the pipeline construction in environmental impact statements, I argue that that one of the places that distrust comes from is actually quite legitimate. The the idea that all of this you know knowledge is actually not apolitical but exists in the world of, of you know, politics and political economy, which is to say that the oil firms and the contractors that they hire and the states that are, um, the, the state agents that, um, that review these environmental impact statements um, are shaped by their relationships with each other um, and by the money that is, um, that circulates within and among these institutions. So we know this, we know that the, the contractors that um, drew up the environmental impact statement for the Keystone XL pipeline um, had employees that had previously worked for TransCanada, you know, quite, quite directly um, or on other projects that TransCanada had proposed around the world. Um, and when that came to light, you know, that sort of demonstrates for pipeline opponents that that their feeling that these experts are bought out by oil firms is actually true, and um, and so I think that I think that that's um, you know the liberal critics of populism like to to use this example and say they're that populists are just emo overly emotional, irrational, that they're unable to make any proper diagnoses. But what that position, you know. The assumptions behind that position are that a kind of disinterested academic knowledge is what ought to govern us. But there is no disinterested, you know, scientific or academic knowledge. You know, we, you know, that seems very clear. And and so in contesting the varieties and kinds of, of science and expertise that were um, utilized in order to authorize these pipelines, what what pipeline opponents and we're doing is kind of trying to repoliticize environmental knowledge and, and scientific knowledge making. And I think that, that that's actually crucial because, you know, what we need is a, a kind of science of the people, you know, a science for, um, for and by um, kind of everyday people, not kind of to even, even if we're going to fight climate change, if we're going to talk about climate change, um, solutions or just transitions or whatever else, if it's all, you know, expert driven, if it's all, you know, produced by, uh, you know, people in universities, like even like me, then it's not going to be, it's not likely to be trusted, not just because of those institutions histories, many of which are, you know, directly tied to a capital accumulation and 
colonial settler colonial dispossession and the like um but it's also not going to be very good knowledge you know if it's not actually politicized in in important ways kai bosworth teaches international studies at virginia commonwealth university we're discussing pipeline populism grassroots environmentalism in the 21st century i'm sasha lily and this is against the grain on pacifica radio so in discussing left and right populism the question of nationalism and xenophobia is one that comes up time and again and i wonder if you can tell us about the campaign that was mobilized against canadian oil company trans canada um, with the support of the canadian government if we go back to our basic definition of populism um, one of the things that we'll notice about it is that the the sort of abstract character of the people versus the elites is really flexible. Um, So who the elites are that are taking advantage of the people um, can shift and and can be filled by different in different ways. And one of the ways that pipeline opponents in um, in the upper Midwest felt like was a good strategy for mobilizing each other was to diagnose those elites not just as you know um, economic elites or political corrupt politicians um, but also foreign um, elites and so you know it is true that trans canada is a canadian corporation and in some ways um, they perceive the the sort of foreignness of their position um, as uh, in some ways a, a PR problem. So since um, since the the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, they've rebranded themselves as TC Energy. So they don't even tell you that they're Canadians in their uh, in their um, firm name anymore, right? Um, so you know, saying that you're being taken advantage of has an emotional appeal, but being taken advantage of by outsiders. Um, is has long been um, a uh, effective tool for diagnosing um, and and mobilizing people in the upper Midwest. And the reason for that is because you know it's in some ways uh, again kind of like a f- uh, a failed critique of capitalism, where the history of um, capitalist globalization since the 1960s and 70s, which has made farming and ranching um, increasingly unprofitable um, and consolidated farm size and and decreased the amount of labor that goes into farming and ranching and and the kind of economic uh, wealth and upward mobility that could potentially exist in those those forms of, of agriculture and no longer exists because the corn or soybean farmer in South Dakota um, now has to, of course, buy all different kinds of inputs from Monsanto and Cargill and, um, you know, gas for the tractors and all this kind of stuff. And at the same time, compete with laborers making corn and soybeans in uh, the Brazilian, you know, uh, the Southeast Brazilian sort of um, new new uh, corn and soy farms and expanding farms there or the uh the australian outback or so on so on and so forth right and so that that capitalist globalization um hit farmers and ranchers really really hard in this region in the 1970s and 80s and um the diagnosis for it is sort of again only partially correct it sort of um blamed the outsiders for Um, the economic um, depression that sort of ensued among agriculture, uh, rather than seeing it as a sort of systemic effect from um, the world system. And so what happened was that, and and I sort of think about this as, as really interesting, like, the really interesting form that both, you know, anti-Chinese sentiment as one form of maybe familiar xenophobia and anti-foreigner sentiment emerged alongside anti-Canadian sentiment in which, you know, U.S. nationals who might, and citizens um, 
white settler farmers might think of themselves as relative having quite a bit in common with your average Canadian, um, but in fact, you know, have to be competitors at the regional, national, and international scale with those Saskatchewan farmers just across the border as well. And so this very interesting sort of attempt to almost diagnose the world system in which oil markets um, exist uh, and are reliant on traversing agricultural space and thus devaluing it um, in the name of uh, the, the sort of you know, shareholders that they are accruing um, value and capital for um, is almost diagnosed as you know, the proper target of interest. Um, but what happened, unfortunately, and, and in a way that I sort of critically um, uh, describe is that they were taken less as, again, symptoms of that international uh, political economic system and more as symptoms of their national character. And so the purported Chinese consumption of the Canadian tar sands um, was seen as uh, emblematic of Chinese communism or alternatively Chinese authoritarianism of, you know, Chinese competition and excess, um, and even in some more kind of xenophobic ways um, as well. Um, and similarly, the, the sort of competition from Canada was seen as, um, as actually a symptom of Canada becoming a kind of failed oil state, right? That, um, that can't even treat its own citizens and its own First Nations um, in a respectful way. Well, you've been really touching on this as we've been going during the hour, but I wanted to end by asking you, for those of us who would like to see significant mass movements to slow, to stop the climate emergency, what lessons do you think can be drawn here about the limitations of the kind of populism that was seen, uh, environmental populism, in fighting the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines. Yeah, I mean, I think that if we are to address the climate crisis in a way that addresses its um, systemic roots in capitalism and colonialism, um, and does so with a, a sort of reparative um, eye towards uh, building a livable, habitable future, uh, and in the process abolishing, you know, class distinctions and, and so on and so forth, you know, we would need sig significant mass movements. So in that regard, I, I sort of agree with the, the, the feeling that a lot of people have that we need to appeal to the greatest number of people possible in order to build a political movement to uh, construct and reconstruct the world otherwise. Um, and so I think that populism can, and a kind of left populism can still exist as a uh, as a stepping stone, a, a transition towards um, you know from deep from that sort of depoliticized existence or alienated existence that we might have or that many people might feel in their everyday lives towards a kind of reconnection with each other in public space and you know through the creation of, of sort of collective forms of social life that would be necessary in order to, you know, have a mass movement. Um, nonetheless, I think that one of the major lessons that I, I sort of conclude with in my book is that as soon as we start thinking of, you know, the mass movement in the back of our head, oftentimes what happens if we're in this sort of populist rhetorical or strategic framework is that we start saying, oh no, I've got to, I've got to appeal to, um, you know, Joe the plumber in Ohio or something like that with my climate politics. And you let that imaginary person in your head orient your politics in a certain way without actually talking to people on the ground in these places. So go back to that story I told, you know, towards the beginning of our interview about some of those farmers and ranchers who became deeply radicalized, like very, very quickly. Um, 
and you know this is south dakota this is not like bay area or whatever right like that that's you know unexpected in some kind of ways but it shows you the capacity that people have to diagnose the world around them and the politics and, and tactics and strategies that would need for it to be transformed um, for the benefit of everyone. Um, and so, you know, we can't let our imagination of the desires of the, the mass or popular or greatest number of people sort of limit what we think our political possibilities are. And I think that a, a kind of catchphrase version of this is that, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of against the idea that we need to push at the left edge of the possible and instead really think about what is the way that we can change what we perceive to be possible, right? Um, who we perceive to be the subjects that can be enrolled in that mass movement and what their desires and politics are. Um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a advocate of a social revolution, you know, and so this is in my, um, in my bones in some kind of ways. I'm, I want to think about how the, the working class can transform itself by recognizing itself as a class that needs to abolish class society and thus abolish itself. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, but one of the steps along the way, I think, is thinking about how, um, how our emotions and desires um, aren't as set in stone as sometimes we assume in our imaginations. And that um, you know, creating spaces where folks from uh, different generations, backgrounds, um, uh, positions, and, and so on and so forth can come into conversation and solidarity with each other um, in order to pursue that sort of uh, political transformation is absolutely crucial, if insufficient, to the broader, um, broader sort of sequence of, of political struggle that it has to be a part of. Um, that's one of the things that I think we can take from the populist portion of the movement against the pipelines uh, in the upper Midwest. Kai Bosworth, thank you so much. Thanks. It was so wonderful to talk to you. Kai Bosworth is the author of Pipeline Populism, Grassroots Environmentalism in the 21st Century. Uh, that is published by the University of Minnesota Press. And uh, he teaches international studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time.